Scripture reading this morning will be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you'd like to follow along in the Pew Bibles, that will be found on page 1062. That's Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must give the most earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if a word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and a disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will." Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest this morning, we welcome you again. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It is an exciting time to be a part of the life of the Mount Juliet congregation. This afternoon, you'll have the opportunity to come by the building from 2 to 4 o'clock if you have concerns about what we study about this morning. Uh, we're thinking about the topic of salvation, and there's no greater topic that you could have a concern about. And if you've not settled that with your Lord, and if you are not saved, and if you are not certain of that, there'll be individuals at the building this afternoon if you have further questions, if you want to study that in depth. Also, our elders will be at the building this afternoon at that same time from 2 to 4 to study with you, or there may be some of you that want to come by and, and pray with them. And anything that we can do to help you be encouraged to draw closer to God please take advantage of that time between 2 and 4 this afternoon. Also this evening, Doug Williams is going to be preaching. Uh, many of you probably have heard Doug when he spoke this past year during our deacon service on that Wednesday evening of Thanksgiving. It was absolutely amazing. Also, he has spoken at leadership retreat and some of the other retreats that we've had. And after each time he speaks, the summary is, we have got to get that guy to preach for us sometime. <clears throat> and so this Sunday will be a wonderful opportunity for that at 6 o'clock this evening. We're looking forward to that. Also, this next Sunday is Scholarship Sunday. We have eight men, young men, that we provide a, a small scholarship for them uh, as they are Bible majors. And that's really amazing to think about. Eight from this congregation are majoring in Bible right now. I was visiting down toward Freed Hardeman uh, just Wednesday night, and the, the gentleman that, that introduced me is, is a part of the, uh, he's the dean of the, business, of the Bible department. <clears throat> and he made a statement that I really hadn't thought about. He said, the Mount Juliet congregation has more Bible majors than any other single congregation at Freed Hardeman University. It's pretty awesome to think about the crop of men that right now are devoting their life to learning God's Word so that they can go deeper into ministry as they graduate from school. Two of those will speak at each service next week, early, late, and evening service. And if you will check the mail-out bulletin, you'll see which ones are speaking at which service because that may affect which service you want to go to, if it's your son or grandson or, or, or nephew or close friend or whatever it may be. So be looking in the mail-out bulletin for that particular information. It's going to be, I believe, one of the best days that we have all year as a congregation here. The third Sunday that we need to mention is Friends Day. 
There are oversized postcards scattered throughout the foyer. Be sure you pick these up. It's only two weeks away. So now is the time to be planning who you'll invite, praying about who you're going to invite, and hand them an invitation. Or you can mail it to them. But make sure that you take advantage of the opportunity to let those that you know, those that you love, those that you've been praying about, let them know you want them to be a part of the day. Plan on taking them to lunch after you go to your Bible class uh, together on that morning of Friends Day. And then invite them back for the four o'clock service at the park. Last year was our first year to do that. And, and it was just an amazing, an amazing afternoon. And so uh, there will also be a six o'clock service here for those that, that it's not uh, best for you to be at the park at the four o'clock service. Uh, there'll be a lot more said about that, uh, but be sure that you go ahead now and be thinking and planning uh, who can you be a part of their life and inviting them to come and to be a part of our life for a day. Uh, we actually have some members that last year was our first point of contact with them on on Friends Day, and that's pretty exciting to think that maybe there will be another soul, maybe there will be a family of souls that can be reached, maybe there will be several families, it's up to us. So make sure that you're prayerful about that and do everything that you can do. I encourage you to invite at least five people to Friends Day. Uh, set yourself a goal. Everybody can invite their friend. We don't all have the same abilities and talents, but everybody can invite their friends. And so let's be sure that we do that. When you think about what chair are you in? You know, it is important which chair you're in. You remember in junior high or high school, maybe you were fortunate enough to never be that student, but some of you probably were that student where, you know, you went in the first day of class and you sat down and they were calling the roll. And as they called the roll, and then, you know, maybe the teacher was saying, okay, get your American history book out. And you look down and you have American lit and you realize that you're in the wrong class. And there's that embarrassing feeling of, wow, I'm in the wrong chair. And I'd give anything right now if I could just vanish. I don't want to get up in front of this class and walk out. You know, there are points in life that determine uh, our destination based upon the chair in which we sit. You know, one way to illustrate that, if, if any of you have, have been snow skiing or if you at least think about being on the slopes, you know, when, when you commit to sit down in a certain chair, a lift chair, you can't go halfway up and then look over at another slope and say, oh, that's the one I meant to be on. You know, when you get to the top of the hill, just in case you don't know, you don't have a choice about whether or not you get, stay on or get off. They make you get off the, the, the lift chair. And, and if, if you were thinking you were on one of the, the moderates, you know, one of the easy, maybe the green slope, and you have just begun skiing, and you realize you've made a mistake and you've gotten on one that takes you to the black, uh, slopes, which is the highly skilled slopes. If you know what I'm talking about, I don't have to say any more. But if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm telling you, it's a gut-wrenching feeling to get off of those slopes and realize you've made a terrible mistake. There's no lift down. There's no hiking down. And you look down the top of the slope, and the whole time you're thinking, I caught the wrong chair. I wish I would have never been in the wrong chair. It's appointed in a man wants to die, and after that, the judgment. There's coming a day where what chair you're in in life is going to be a lot more important than just thinking, how am I going to get down this slope? The scripture reading this morning was capably read, and, and it was written by an inspired writer. And, and, and 
this man that wrote the book of Hebrews, he asked a question that ought to pierce our mind this morning. It ought to make us think. He says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Neglect. You know, you don't have to be anti-God for your soul to be condemned. You don't have to be an open, vocal enemy of God to not be saved. According to what the Hebrew writer says, all we have to do is neglect salvation. How do you feel when you see on the news or, or, or you see in real life someone who has neglected a child? Or they've neglected an animal and kept it pinned up but yet didn't feed it? What goes through your mind when you see a garden or a flower bed that's just been totally neglected? What goes through your mind when you hear the Hebrew writer caution, don't neglect? your salvation this morning I hope all of us are willing to give careful consideration to the word of God which by the way if you'll notice in the text that was read this morning it is talking about not neglecting salvation but it's in the broader context of learning and considering the word of God he urges us in verse 1 to heed those words that have been written to us and that we have heard lest they drift away it's so easy to let the important things in life become unimportant to us. I know that doesn't make sense, but that's a part of our fleshly nature. It's important for us to keep the important things as a high priority and never neglect them. And so this morning, I'd like for us to look at a series of scriptures. And we won't have time to go into great depth. And so it very well could provoke many questions. And as I've already mentioned... That's why we're setting that time aside this afternoon for you to come by and, and say to one of our teachers, to say to one of our elders, I want to study that more. There's something that was said this morning that convicts me, and I want to learn more about the Word of God in that. What is the first chair? The first chair, if you'll notice here, is a chair that looks like the chair that some of you are sitting in. These are the chairs that have been added to our auditorium as we grew several years ago. They match the fabric on our pews. They're, they're very comfortable chairs, to be honest with you. They're very high-dollar chairs. They ought to be comfortable. And, and when you look at these chairs, you say, why would this chair be on this stage during this sermon? Well, this is the chair that, that many of us would sit in to hear the Word of God. We think about the chair of hearing. How important is it to hear? Turn, if you will, to Romans, the 10th chapter. In Romans, the 10th chapter, we see in verse 17 where faith comes from. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Now keep turning to Romans 10 because we're going to look to a few more passages there. What is it that should be produced as we hear the Word of God? Well, that's important, and we'll talk about that for just a moment, but let's think more about just the importance of hearing. Isn't it wonderful that you can look around and you can see hundreds of other people that believe it's important to hear the Word of God? Doesn't it give encouragement to you to know that it is that special, that people would get out on a Sunday morning, they'll come back on a Sunday night, they'll come back on a Wednesday night to study the Word of God together. Drop back, if you will, in verse 14 and 15, and notice here what was said to these Jews that Paul was writing to in the book of Romans, the 10th chapter. He says in 14, How then shall they call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him who they have not heard? 
And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How can you believe unless you hear? How can you hear unless someone is preaching to you? And then he takes that and says, isn't it wonderful that, are there, that there are individuals that give their life to the preaching of God's word? And that's one of the things we want to do next Sunday is honor those young men that want to give their life to the preaching and teaching of God's word. But God says here, it's important. It's important that we be a, hear, a hearer. Why? Because as he mentioned here, as we hear, we ought to be willing to move to a different chair. Well, what are we going to hear? We're going to hear that the word of God is truth. And by the way, that's pretty easy to prove. I'm not expecting you to believe it blindly. If you don't understand that, we need to study that in depth. But I'm simply saying to you, you can study the word of God and there is evidence, strong evidence that it's true. And then you read within this story and it confirms secular history. You know what secular history says? Secular history says that there was a Jew named Jesus that was born and that he grew up in Nazareth and that he died on a cross. Secular history talks about his resurrection. And we go in the Word of God and we say, what does the Word of God teach me? In other words, what if faith comes by hearing, what should my faith be? Where should I set? but in the chair of belief. Now notice, the chair of belief is a real, real comfortable chair. The chair of belief is one that if you were thinking about, I may sit here a long time, this would be a lot better chair than that little chair right there. In the chair of belief, you could think about watching an entire ball game or a movie. You could even spend an entire afternoon. You wouldn't mind thinking about coming in every afternoon and sitting in the chair of belief. It's real, real comfortable. It rocks a little bit. It's padded. You could even recline if, if you would like to do that. If it's more comfortable for you, you could even lean back if you want to. It's a very, very comfortable chair. Why is a chair of belief so comfortable? There's a great comfort in believing there's an almighty God, a creator. There's a great comfort in understanding that he loved you so much that he gave his only begotten son. There is a belief that we need to have. If you turn back to Acts the 16th chapter, this belief was supposed to go further than just a comfort. In other words, this belief was supposed to be active and to move us into action. In Acts the 16th chapter, notice as we are about to read verse 30, this is when the Philippian jailer was about ready to take his life. And that's another story that we don't have time to go into right now. But we see that the apostles stopped him from taking his life. And Paul and Silas urged him to realize that all the prisoners were there, that he didn't need to kill himself. But the problem is, being a Roman guardsman, he had no idea who Jesus Christ really was. He probably knew that a man from Nazareth named Jesus lived because he had become pretty popular. But he had no understanding that there was a spiritual significance to Jesus Christ. Now, if somebody doesn't have that understanding... What's one of the first things they need to do as they start hearing about Jesus? Well, notice what the answer in verse 30. He brought them out and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, now keep in mind, he doesn't know Jesus at all. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. It is impossible for us to be saved unless we believe that Jesus Christ is a Savior, the Son of God. 
But the problem with just stopping there is that our faith, even though it could be defined as a degree or a measure of faith, it is also, if we stay here in this chair, it would be defined as dead faith. Look, if you will, to James' second chapter, and let's see who else sits in this chair with us. In other words, if this is as far as we've gotten, because after all, it is very comfortable. I'll be honest with you, I kind of dread moving on from this point. This is a comfortable place to be. I may want to start preaching from here. Now, when we look at James, the second chapter, there's something very, very, very uncomfortable about this chair. Who shares this chair with us? In James 2 and 19, he says, and there's almost a little sarcasm here. You understand what I mean. Look what he says here. You believe that there is one God? <laughs> you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Do you realize that Satan is sitting in this chair? All of his wicked hosts, the demons, they're sitting in this chair too. They have no doubt that Jesus Christ lives. They know He lives. They believe that. But they have never had a faith that would take them beyond the fact that Jesus lives. Notice that next verse as he says in 20, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Why is it so easy to sit here? It's so easy whenever somebody goes in the mercy room to say, Oh, I have a faith in God. I can pray. It's so easy to sit in this chair and just simply be religious. Oh, yes, I'm religious. I go to church. If people at the office or work, if they want to talk religion, I can talk religion. It's so comfortable here because here we get to believe there's a God. We get to form our own understanding of God. But we don't really have to transform ourselves unless we're going to do it God's way. And if we're going to do it God's way, there is a very, very uncomfortable step that we have to stay, take. It is a step over into a chair of repentance. Now, if you had very, very good eyes, you could see that there's a little boy here that's crying. And underneath his picture, it says, repenting stool. And underneath that, it has Jonathan Pettis' name. And this was the stool that JP would have to go and sit upon whenever he was in trouble at his house growing up. You see, there's not really, I mean, when you think of that to here, there's not really a lot of comfort level here. I mean, this just isn't a place that you say, hey, if you're just asking me what's most comfortable, what I want to do, I love sitting here as opposed to there. When you think about what's the hardest part of becoming a Christian, it's interesting to me when people say baptism. I know that there may be somebody that for some very unique reason, baptism was difficult for them. But brethren, let me tell you, baptism is an easy part of salvation. The hard part's crucifying self. The hard part is saying, I'm going to put self to death 
and I'm going to start living for the Lord. The belief, the understanding that I have in Jesus is that He requires of me to be transformed. There are so many passages we could look at, but, but look at Acts the third chapter in verse 19. This is just the next chapter after the church began on the day of Pentecost. Remember on the day of Pentecost, they asked what they needed to do to be saved, and He said, repent and be baptized. And now notice, here we have Peter and John and they have just healed the lame man at, at the gate, beautiful. And then in 19, he's preaching a sermon to those people that had gathered around because they were impressed with a miracle. And he says, I want to tell you more about who performed that miracle. It was God. And I want to tell you what God wants you to do in your life. And dropping right down to verse 19, he says, repent. Therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice repentance is a turn. It's a change in our life. And conversion is also a change that involves us being one way and totally being converted to another way from the flesh to the spirit, from self to living for Christ, from the world to, to the church, from darkness to light. We could go on and on with biblical teachings of what it means to repent, to say, I'm no longer going to live by self. I'm no longer going to love the world or the things that's in the world, 1 John 2. Turn, if you will, to Acts 26 and verse 20, and you'll notice at the end of Acts 26 and 20, we see what I like to think of personally as one of the best definitions of repentance in the Bible. At the end of verse 20, Paul is standing before Agrippa and he's talking about his ministry. And at the end of Acts 26 and 20, he says that he told the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do the works befitting, or some translations would say do the works proving repentance. You see, when we move from this chair to repentance, we are saying, God, I'm turning from self. I've, I've heard your gospel. I believe that the sacrifice that you're asking me to make is worth it. I turn to you. I totally allow you, your teachings, your power to transform my life. We're new creations in the sense of our habits, our behavior. But notice, we don't read anywhere in the Bible that that is the point in time that our sins are forgiven. And that's what it means to be saved, is when our sins are forgiven. And so we see another teaching in the Word of God that in addition to repentance, we also need to move to another place. And that is, we need to be willing to confess Jesus. When we look in the Scriptures, if you will, go back to Romans the 10th chapter. Romans the 10th chapter. As you're turning there, you say, well, what does this chair represent? You know, if, if you were sitting around me right now, it would probably be obvious to you if you were just in, in regular chairs, uh, regular height, standard height, it would be obvious to you that I'm kind of sitting above you. You know, it dawned on me the other day, uh, I was in the, the new subway that is up next to the new Walmart, Paddock's Place. And, and I, I don't know if you can picture that place in your mind. Uh, obviously, if you're normal, you probably can't. But, but uh, you know, right when you walk in the door, there is one very, very tall table. And the stools around it are probably about this high. You have to have some pretty good long legs to get up in it. And then every other table and booth in that little store is the standard height. And, and, and I was, uh, Tracy and I were, were in there the other day and, and we were eating a sandwich. And, you know, I looked over at the, the one 
little group of people sitting around that. And I thought, you know, you got to have some confidence to eat there. You're in the front window, you're right beside the front door, and you're towering above everybody. I mean, everybody just naturally looks over at you because you're up there. Well, when we think about a stool, what does the Lord want you to do is, as you begin your relationship with Him? Be in the closet? Sit down low in a corner? No? Confession is all about whether or not you're ashamed of the Lord. You see, in Romans, the 10th chapter, which is oftentimes taught out of context, but if you place it in the context, Paul is writing to Jews that they did not want to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God because there were so many other Jews around them that didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they didn't want to make that stand because it would cause a rift, if you will, in their Jewish community. And so Paul writes, and you can see this in the first four verses of this chapter, he writes urging them to realize if you want to have a zeal for God, it's going to have to be through Christ. And that's why he talks about confession. Look, if you will, in 8. And we're just going to have to read this quickly. We just don't have time to elaborate. But be looking for the phrases that talk about with your mouth and confession and etc. Beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Now keep in mind, a lot of those Jews would not have done that at that time. They wouldn't have confessed Jesus. And believe, now this is other chair in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. Notice it's on the way. It's unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made. Notice it does not say into salvation. It says unto confession. You're on your way to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. But there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And the calling on the name of the Lord there, that's an exact quote from Joel, the second chapter in the Old Testament that Peter used in Acts, the second chapter in verse 21 on the day of Pentecost. He told them, you're going to have to be willing to call on the name of the Lord. They didn't know how to do that. And so at the end of that chapter, they asked how to do it and they were told how to do that, to repent and be baptized. But now for this topic here of confession, we can't be ashamed of our Lord. We have to be willing to speak out. When we look to John, the 12th chapter, you'll notice there in verse 42 that there were those who would not they believed in Jesus. They were Jewish leaders in the synagogue, but they would not confess Jesus because they were afraid that they would be cast out of the synagogue. And the summary is this, and this is what it always ties back to with confession. 43, for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. This morning, I can't say that I, I want to be saved but then go into school or to work or among my neighbors tomorrow and then something come up about Christianity and someone say, are you a Christian? Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Are you ashamed of him or not? We have to be willing to boldly confess, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then there's another chair. Now, this chair right here, when I tell you what it is, you may say, I don't understand why that chair... We need to move to the chair of baptism. Why does this chair represent baptism? There are a lot of different ways I started to go with different chairs, but I wanted to make sure that, that, that it was something that, that would appeal to all of us and wouldn't be offensive. 
I'll be honest with you what I had to talk myself out of. I wanted to go down to our, one of our local funeral homes and I wanted to uh, borrow one of their gurneys that they transport corpse on. Because that's really what baptism is. It's taking the individual that's dead in sin and it is taking them literally to their burial. And we take that individual that's dead in sin and we bury that individual and they rise. It's a resurrection. We go into that water dead spiritually and we arise from that water because of God's salvation, because of the grace of God, because of the forgiveness of sins that He offers us. We arise alive. We come into it dead spiritually and we leave it as a living creation. But instead, I chose to go a safer route and many of you have sat in this chair, many of you men. This is the chair that came from the men's side of the dressing area. Just last Sunday, Colby Trawick sat in this chair and, and he took off his shoes and he got dressed and, and he was baptized and he came out of that water and, and he sat down in this chair again and put his shoes on. Many of you have sat in this chair right before and right after you were baptized. Why? You know, if somebody had never seen a baptism before, it probably seemed like a very strange thing to do. But yet when we realize from Mark, the 16th chapter, that it's what God asks of us, when we have the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. When we look at Acts, the second chapter in verse 37, those individuals were pricked in their heart and they asked, what shall we do? And they were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Those who sit here, they have their sins remissed. But what we need to make sure, we need to make sure that of all the baptisms that are taught today, there's only one that the Lord teaches. Now keep in mind, if that sounds offensive, we didn't come up with that. It's what God said. Look again in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. In Ephesians 4, we have seven ones mentioned there. He begins listing those ones in verse 4, that there's one body, one spirit, and one hope of your calling. But notice verse 5. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Have you had that one baptism? Amongst a religious world that teaches so many other baptisms. Acts the 19th chapter, those individuals do not have that one baptism. If you read the first five verses of Acts 19, once they realized they had had a religious baptism, but once they realized it wasn't the right baptism, they were immersed again and this time into Christ for the remission of their sins. And when we come out of the watery grave of baptism, we're placed into another chair and it's a chair of fellowship. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, notice again the word baptism in verse 13. He says in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into... Remember the other passages talked about unto salvation? Believing unto salvation or, or confessing unto salvation? But notice here, we are baptized into the body whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, all have been made to drink of the one Spirit. I'm sure that you have a dining room table or a kitchen table at home. And when your family or 
close friends gather around, you probably have the places that you always sit. Isn't it a wonderful thing to think about that when we are added to the Lord's church, His one body, that in baptism that takes place. We say, well, what is His body? There's many ways He wants us to see His body. But one of the common ways that refers to it by the terms that He gives Himself and that He gives us is we're family. Remember when they, the disciples asked Jesus, teach us how to pray? He said, our Father who art in heaven. Remember the story of the prodigal son? There's a father and a son. Remember when Jesus was trying to break down the idea that there'd be a hierarchy in the church and he said, we are all brethren. Remember when Jesus is introduced to us as our elder brother? Friends, the beauty of baptism is not only that is the time in which we are saved, but it adds us to the Lord's family. And you know, there's just something special about having a seat at the family. And there's something special about even when the family gathers and one is missing, if we truly are family, we ought to notice that. You know, you sit down at supper and you, well, where's so-and-so? Why? Because families are just that way. They love each other. They look out for each other. We are a family that's on a journey to heaven. And we're in this together. You know, one of the most beautiful remarks I heard this past year as one of you, as a man, was baptized into Christ. After you were baptized into Christ, we were walking out of the building. And he turned and he looked at me and he said, It's great to be a part of something. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord's family. That's a great place to be a part of. Now it's possible to leave our seat and go out into any chair over there, anywhere out in the world. And if so, we need to come back. But you have the idea of this morning's lesson. The idea is that all of us are probably somewhere on this journey. And maybe you've been in a certain chair long enough and maybe you've been holding back and you can't give a good reason why. There's no good reason to not being saved. Maybe this morning or maybe this afternoon you say, I'm going to study that in depth. And come by the building between two and four. But friends, there is nothing, nothing more important than your salvation. Can we help you with that this morning? Oh, it's God doing all of the saving. But if we can help you, if we can encourage you, if we can study with you, if we can pray with you, if you're ready to be immersed into Christ, if you're ready to come back to the family, let's make sure this morning that we take the steps and we move to the place so that we can honestly say, I've not neglected my salvation. When my time is ready to step over on the other side, I'm ready. I'm ready for that appointed time.